This podcast is a production of Phoenix Media. Explore more episodes of this show and other great shows on the Phoenix Media Podcast Network by visiting phoenixmedia.us. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the company or its advertisers and may contain language that's unsuitable for younger listeners. Welcome to the Dogfish Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to the topics, events, and personalities impacting parents today. My name is Jason Arias, founder of Forever USA. Uh, sadly, uh, we do not have Miss Sylvia West today. She had a emergency uh, that she had to go tend to, so she's off being a bit of a hero. But who we do have with us is Michelle and Julie from the TMCC Veterinary Nursing School. And we sit and talk about some absolutely incredible topics uh, revolving around uh, the idea of vet techs and who you're working with in the veterinary community and what the difference is between a veterinary nurse and an actual veterinarian, some of the decisions that are going on there, how to get involved, all sorts of crazy things like that. It was a really powerful episode. I hope you guys love it. Um, So let's just go ahead and hop onto it. Well, welcome to the show, guys. It's good to see you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Jason. It's um, it's been a little bit since we got to hang out. Yes. We yes. um, we had a long summer, a long hot summer. I know. I met um for everybody to catch everybody up real quick. I met Michelle when we were doing an art installation over at a TMCC, and um, and she really kind of opened my eyes to the I was saying earlier the unsung heroes of the veterinary community. And I wanted to bring you guys on to help us tell our followers and our listeners what that's all about. So maybe kind of start with who you guys are and um, what your backgrounds are, and then we'll kind of go from there. Okay. Uh, I'm Michelle Noreen and I am a veterinarian. I am um, a graduate of North Carolina state college of veterinary medicine. And uh um, and then I've been in the role of director, uh, academic program director for a veterinary nursing program here in Reno, Nevada at Truckee Meadows Community College. And um, we recently changed our name to veterinary nursing so people might know our profession as a veterinary technician. So, and then I'm here with my, my colleague, Julie McMahon. Hi, um, I'm Julie McMahon. I'm a licensed veterinary technician here in Reno. Um, have a long, long history here. Uh, started in a practice next to my house back in 1988. Um, and literally was just, you know, cleaning cages, mopping floors, walking dogs. You started a practice it, next to your house? Yeah, like- <laughs> I, I grew up next to a hospital. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, um, and so, uh, yeah, over the years, it's just, it's, been my career. Um, some people think of this type of work as a job or a stepping stone to something else. And for me, since I was literally 12 years old, it has been who I am. That's what you've and done. Yeah, that's what I've done. So, so maybe and, you guys can, um, can clear up a couple things just even listening so far. Sure. Like what are the, 
what are the levels? So like you've changed your name instead of just vet tech. Now it's vet veterinary nursing, but then there's the veterinarian. So, I mean, like who are all the players that are involved in uh, veterinary medical care or like, like help me with some of the terminology. Sure. So it's the basic that most people think of the veterinarian in the veterinary hospital. Um, but yeah, it's a lot more uh, involved. Um, the veterinarians really don't function without the veterinary technician. There's an initiative to change the name from veterinary technician to veterinary nurse because technician doesn't quite encompass, it seems, everything that that this support role does. It's really the right hand to the, um, to the veterinarian. In the veterinary hospital, though, we also have to give credit. We have veterinary assistants. Okay. So they help the veterinary technician or veterinary nurse. And then we have the background, you know, like Julie started out working in the kennels. Um, you know, so there's basic care of animals, especially if a veterinary hospital has a uh, boarding facility or something like that. And, and then, of course, the receptionists, they're really the face of a practice. Yeah. So yeah. that's the basics of a small companion animal practice. Some of our right. hospitals have really um, become large and a lot of different people um, physical therapy and specialists. I was just going to say, like, like, what do you like? I would assume that there's other specialists as well. Like, so you've got like a general, like, and maybe I can help understand this more just from a, a, a layman's medical. I mean, like we've got a general practitioner, right? So like, that's your doctor that your you family go to. Doctor, normal, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but then there's like specialists as well, as far as like if there was something wrong with the brain or the spine or like, right. well, is that true or no? Yes. Generally we think of veterinarians as being specialists. So yes, you can be a general practice veterinarian and then go on for further training to do a residency an internship then a residency and specialize. But we also have specialists in the veterinary nursing field, which Julie can talk more yeah. about. So in general, your your specialty practices or breakdowns, major ones would be, um, well, dentistry, I'm just going to stay that because go team, go, go dentistry. Um, but so on the veterinary aspect, it's, it is, it's dentistry, surgery, cardiology, um, internal medicine, uh, physical therapy and rehabilitation. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on, like there's numerous, uh, levels of where you can really focus your passion in. Um, and it's very paralleled in the technician side of it. And so we have, um, a group called the national association of veterinary technicians of America, and they, um, basically help us regulate what we, the path to becoming specialized in something specific. Um, and so for us, there's opportunities again, yay, go dentistry. You can be um, a veterinary technician specialist in dentistry, um, surgery. Like Julie is. Yeah, just yeah, yeah I was, I was yeah. picking up on that. That, was, <laughs> that must be where the cheering um, crowd's coming you from. You can focus on um, just anesthesia because as veterinary nurses, we're in a, a very key part um, as what we consider an anesthetist, where we are vital in the roles of um, uh, with uh, animal anesthesia. There's radiology. There again, th- there's 
tons. I mean, you could, there's, I think there's now 18 diversified specialties for technicians. So as a, as a baseline, how many of those, and I mean, I don't need like an exact number. Sure. So Reno, we're a little under, I think half a million people here. What are we like yeah. for? Like, um, how many of those specialists do we have here in town? Is that something that you're only going to find in the big cities? Cause I've heard like friends and other people talk about needing to go to no. UC Davis for yeah. things like that. So from um, the veterinary aspect, it's, it's a fairly small community in the Reno sparks area. Um, we have a couple surgeons, we have, um, cardiology, internal medicine, physical therapy, and rehabilitation much beyond that. We're fairly limited and do still have to travel to the uh, regional locations in Sacramento, um, Davis, or even sometimes the Bay area. Um, as far as the technician aspect of it, there's probably, honestly, I don't know how many, but I would say it's probably fewer than 10 of us in the Northern Nevada, Northern California region um, that have our specialty within our areas. Okay. All right. So back, so back to like, I can sit and ask these kind of questions all day. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating <laughs> to me because I think it's, we, we run into this thing as pet parents. And I mean, even taking our, care of our own health that we don't have the answers to hardly any of these questions until it's an emergency. Yeah. And then I don't know that that's normally when we're making the best decisions when we're underneath you know, emotional distress and we can't yeah. hear from our animal, like what they're going through and what they're feeling. And we're, a lot of times we're having to make these decisions last minute. So trying mm-hmm. to know some of this stuff up front um, and we've talked to vets too, but I'm like, I'm fascinated to hear on your guys' side of things because there's not a bias. Like you're at the beginning, you're at the, the training side of things. It's not a bias of like, well, this is how we do things in our clinic and we shouldn't do things like that clinic. Um but I know like we've been in veterinary offices when we're losing animals or a friend's losing an animal and you're not allowed to be with them sometimes. And you are other times and like trying to understand, like, like, like how do we make those investments and insurance? Like there's, this is such a huge, huge topic. (laughs) Um, I have to say first, it really is important especially when you are in an emergency emergency situation that as a dog parent, that you have a regular veterinary hospital that you go to, that you're established somewhere and they know you. Um, Even if it's just going for an annual exam, you know, with younger, healthy animals, it's really important because then you are establishing relationships so that then when it is an emergency, um, it, it, yes, there are emergency hospitals that fill in, which are great to go to. Um, but I think it really is important establishing in a relationship with a veterinary hospital with yeah. the whole team at the sure. veterinary hospital. Well, and, and that's one of the things that we've talked about too, is not, not limiting it to going in just when there's an emergency going yeah. in, like even on the other extreme of things going in just to say hi, so that your animal is more comfortable in that environment and not always under stress every time that they go in there. Yeah, that's huge. And we've been, um, as a profession, we've been trying to move that way in the sense of trying to reduce the overall stress for, for the animals. You know, we're, we're learning more about 
simple things like how we handle and restrain them during uh, our, their visits. Um, and like you said, desensitizing to them and, uh, you know, making it a positive visit, letting them walk through the hospital and get treats and positive feedback. Um, but as far as kind of leading to your question of, you know, how, how to help owners better understand themselves, the, the situations they're in, it does really go back to regular routine care for your pet, um, even when you feel like they may not need anything, because part of that routine care, especially in a family practice, is going to be education. And the people who are giving you that basic information about your animal's wellness and, um, you know, it could be development behavior. There's numerous things that it can fall under, but it goes back again to not just the veterinarian, but a large part of the support staff, either your assistants or technicians are your, your first line contact. We're doing the face-to-face. We're in the exam rooms for a majority of those exam appointments or vaccine appointments. We're doing that conversation and helping with the educational information. And so I, I guess the short answer being is, is that preventative is huge. It's very important. Even when you feel like your pet is healthy and may not need the things that we always recommend, but preventative makes a huge difference to maybe not have you in that situation where you are. Cause I work in emergency part-time. So I see a lot of what you explained having to make that heart wrenching decision um, with just a little bit of information and literally sometimes no time to even make a, what you would consider a rational choice. Um, so I, again, I think it just goes back to just that common um, education and being consistent in what you would do. And like you said, it's hard enough for your own health, but uh, sometimes I think we treat our pets better than we treat ourselves. So, well, and, um, and that's been something that I've become very aware of is that for many of us, um, the, the emotional weight that a pet can carry into our lives as a family member is often just as deep as an immediate typical family member, you know, and, and trying to make some of those decisions. The difference is, is that when you go into a hospital, if you can't pay for a teeth cleaning or something like, uh, that's not a good example. If you take your family member into the hospital, they're not going to let them pass away or die. If you can't pay your bill, but I mean, isn't that the decision that we're kind of faced with, like either euthanasia or paying the bill in certain circumstances? Absolutely. Yeah. And that that's probably the biggest reason why there's so much um, negative negativity or negative feelings, especially associated towards emergency facilities is because it's difficult. One is that we as a profession are not a non-for-profit organization. We are a profit for-profit profession. Um, And then you go into the aspects of you have to pay for the facility. You have to pay for your staff. You have to pay for the materials and goods to be able to provide the services that we do. And so there is this really disheartening balance between the financial capabilities of a family and whether or not they can make the choice to save them. Um, There are resources, um, but again, a lot of it goes back to preventative. For instance, parvo puppies. It's cheaper to go get a $20 vaccine than it is to pay thousands of dollars to try to save their little lives. 
And, and that one is a big one. We see that in emergency a lot because it's a preventable disease that, um, you know, could, could have 100% been avoided by a little bit of education and a little bit of vaccination. Um, and they, I would say statistically a third of these animals get euthanized strictly for financial purposes. So yeah, it's, it's a fair, fairly decent number, but again, it goes back to that. It's, it's, we're not, we're not a shelter. We're not a not-for-profit. We, I mean, that's, and that's a big part of it, which well, neither, people neither don't take into consideration. Yeah. No, but they also, we don't have government backing. We don't have right. insurance companies. It's I mean, still, right. there's getting to some of that is, is moving like some of the, for instance, some of the pet insurance companies are now starting to do direct payment to clinic, which is huge for some families, right? Because who has $3,000 out of pocket to pay for something? Um, and so if their pet is adequately insured and paying, then, then they just meet their deductible and, and it's, and then they're good. And I think that's the direction that we as a profession will end up moving, but it's still, it's, it's difficult. And, and I, I've been faced with that. I mean, in my career like, for just, years and years, it's, I've never envied being on your side of things, trying to work with a family making those decisions. No. And the reality is, is it's us, it's the support staff, it's the right. assistants, the technicians, the, the customer service representatives that are having to go through that with them. You know, the veterinarian will, you know, give them the information to help them make the best decision. But then a lot of that's left to us as support staff to help them figure out, can they financially figure it out? And if they can't, what's the next best step? That was one of my first experiences when I was a vet assistant before I went down the road to go to veterinary school and uh, a family brought in a puppy, husky puppy that had been playing, you know, the other dog, um, it, it's the puppy's eye prop toast. So it came out of its socket from the roughness of the other animal. And uh, so my role was that I was just adding moisture to that eye that's now out of its socket while the veterinarian was talking to the owners and coming up with a plan. And, um, and they didn't have the money and they didn't want to put the money into the surgery then to either remove the eye or, or put it back in. And I remember spending all this time with this puppy and then the choice was made that they euthanized the puppy. And it was really frustrating because I feel like sometimes people too, they can spend a lot of money for, for a puppy and all the things that go along with it, but then aren't prepared for the emergency medical care. So that's a whole, yeah, that's a whole other. <laughs> that's tough. Yeah, that's it is. It's a really hard It's tough. And then, I mean, we're, we're ending up and, and I know you guys wanted to talk about the impact that the last year and a half, what almost two years that we're going on with, with COVID has had, but I mean, that, that mm -hmm. plays into not just the staffing that we'll talk about, but also the financial. I mean, if you don't have it, you don't have it. No. Um, right. And uh, you, you kind of briefly brought up a point, Julie, that, um, that I just learned about is that the insurance, if you have insurance, 
most of the time it's a reimbursable. It's not an out of like, like you still have to have the money in your account to pay yeah. for that service. And then you get the money reimbursed. Back. Yeah. And so, and even, that's assuming that they don't nitpick it and right. say like, Oh, well this part's covered, but this part's not, or none of it's covered or so on and so forth, because it's, it's very much like human medicine in that aspect that they will audit the medical record and then find what they determine as justifiable treatment or medications. Yeah. So this is, it, and it's tough. These, these are, these are good examples too, of how the reality of practice is really tough and we are training entry-level veterinary nurses and it's, you know, we give them experience by they go and shadow in different hospitals at our local animal, animal emergency and specialty center and our other emergency specialty hospital. Um, so the students get exposure but it's really hard to prepare them also for these tough aspects of being out in practice. And to balance it as well, there are really tough aspects of being out in practice, but then there are very rewarding aspects as well. Okay. So maybe like this might be a good time to talk about like, so you guys are training. Well, I mean, what I would consider the, I mean, the front line of the, the veterinary community, right? Yeah. Yes. A big part so, of it. Yes. Yeah. And they're the ones that, like you mentioned, are, I mean, they're the ones that are having to deal isn't necessarily the right, but communicate and, and work with these families and these mm -hmm. animals. Like the vet typically isn't, and, and no slight to any vets out there, but the vet isn't the one that's sitting there putting eye drops in the animal's eye while their owner's trying to figure out to pay the bill or not pay the bill, you have somebody that could be fresh out of school, or you have somebody that is trained, like sitting there with these animals going through and, 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 and you're in, sorry, I know I'm jumping all over the place, but my brain is just like, like you're in this industry because you love animals so deeply. Yes. And having to go through very similar emotions as the owners that may sometimes not care as much as you care about their animals. That happens too. Definitely. I see um, that. Yeah, I do. Um, and you kind of gave me goosebumps when you said that, because sometimes you, you the bond that you form with a patient in such a short period of time um, can forever change you. And it's, um, it's easy to get emotionally involved and it's not uncommon on a weekly basis for any one of us to lose it, you know, just go in the bathroom and cry until you can't cry anymore. Or you're feeling the loss of that pet as much as the family is when you go in to help them euthanize them. So there's this, and I think in general, it's we, as a profession, people who choose to do this are, I guess, more empathetic, I guess, is a way to say it, or mm -hmm. empaths, I think is the term. Um, because there's this, like you said, strong attachment to the animal world. What a lot of people don't realize, though, is, is that just because you love animals doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, get to love puppies and kittens all day long. You're going to see some 
heart-wrenching situations. And whether that be, you know, sadly, just circumstance of the pet either being injured or ill or has cancer or whatever. Um, and on the opposite of that, some of it's just straight up neglect. It's, it's, it's human behavior that these animals are suffering because of people. And so you go through all these emotions, you go through some sadness sometimes. And, and then there's other times where you're so angry that, you know, you would, you just want to say and do bad things to the human that let this come, you know, come to fruition. So the emotional aspect of it is, is heart wrenching. And we feel, like you said, we feel that emotion right along with a lot of these families. And to, to be fair too, Julie comes from working in emergency and critical care. A lot of our graduates also go out and practice in, you know, small animal hospitals and, and don't see the emergencies. So they do see the good things that are happening in the lives of those animals and get to know them. Um, so, so there are, you know, super nice owners and really well cared right. for animals as well. So we do have the spectrum, but it's a challenging profession, just like in, in human healthcare. And the push really has been for the focus for well, well care for us humans. You know, how do we share experiences that are tough so that the team works it through? Um, you know, we emphasize in school communication and communication with the team. And when you have something that's really bothering you, something that happened, that you talk through it and, and that you have breaks from veterinary practice, you know, that you have a world outside and support systems because that's really what the emphasis has been in the past few years of, of well care for the givers, for the caregivers. So, so back to the topic a little bit about what you guys are doing now, like you guys are responsible for the training of the people that are getting involved in, and this is training that you have to go through, even if you want to end up becoming a vet, is that correct? Uh, this no, is one no. of the paths, yeah, okay. but not totally. You could, we could train a veterinary nurse that would go on to veterinary school, but it's a standalone career as well. Okay. And we train, um, again, veterinary technician, veterinary nurse, we're using interchangeably at this point. Um, but we are an accredited uh, program um, from the American Veterinary Medical Association, there's a committee of veterinary technician education and activities that oversees, that sets a curriculum, that sets the skills that students need to have. And we cover a lot of different topics in the two years that the students are with us. They're with us for a fall and spring semester and then second year fall and spring. And we have classes like animal anatomy and physiology, medical terminology. Um, we do a lot of math, uh, medical dose calculations. Students learn how to handle animals and read behavior and all of the things that are involved with animal nursing of setting IV catheters and administrating fluids, medications, um, bandage changes, wound care, uh, the students learn about pharmacology, all the different drugs that we use. Um, big emphasis, like Julie mentioned before, for anesthesia, because basically the veterinarian is in charge of, uh, of diagnosis, 
prescribing and surgery. And the veterinary nurse can really do everything else. So, um, so like me. As okay. So let, let's break that down a little bit, because I think that's super easy to glaze over um, mm-hmm. the, the diagnosis prescribing and surgery. So, um, so this is where this is right. So this is what of the actual veterinarian of the practice and some practices have more than one vet, correct? Yes. Oh yeah. Right. So their responsibility is for sitting with the patient and then figuring out kind of what is wrong, making their interpretation of what's wrong. And then they mm-hmm. prescribe what should happen next. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And if that prescription involves surgery, then they perform the surgery. But your, your vet nurses slash vet techs, they're doing all of the legwork outside of those actions. Yes. Yeah. So everything in between. Yeah. And so that, the veterinarian that can come out of the room of talking with the owner and the animal and then turn the animal over to the veterinary nurse to basically take care of everything then you know, draw blood for the workup with the, um, you know, for, for lab work and, and get an IV catheter set and start fluids and administer medications and watch that animal while they're hospitalized. And yes, if it needs a surgery, then they're the ones that are getting everything prepped and ready for surgery. Gotcha. So, so what I'm hearing is that uh, if, uh, if, if your animal's going to be in the hospital for a few days that the donuts need to be brought to the, the vet tech. <laughs> like that's who you want to buddy up with. We love, we love junk food. Yes. <laughs> and I will make a push though for healthier snacks because I'm, I'm all about the I'm health Julie. and welfare yeah. of, of the veterinary nurses as well. So, so healthy treats would be great too. <laughs> Yes, we like our fruits too. Fruits, vegetables, yeah. On top we still of like cake. our junk food. You yeah, like we still like our cake. junk food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, she's Dr. Noreen is right in that. Um, you know the the and it, of course it depends on your skill level as a veterinary nurse. You know, for me, I've been literally it's all I've ever known. It's what I do. So I have a lot of you know, base knowledge. I have a lot of extra knowledge that I've been able to acquire over the years. And so at some point, what really needs to happen is, is that you build this trust with your team. And that would be including your veterinarian, your technician or nurse, your assistant staff, and even your CSRs to help with communication. And so, um, but it's going to vary based on the trust between your team, you know, so, um, and the skills, the skill set that the, the team has. So it's, it's going to vary. And, but ultimately it's not uncommon for a doctor to do their, their exam, discuss with the client the information. We're not only dealing with the preparation of diagnostic samples, collection of whatever else we need, um, like she said, IV catheter fluids, medication administration, preparation for surgery. But then we are also oftentimes, and especially in my setting, we're also doing a lot of the financial part of it. We're also going back in and explaining in the estimates, explaining to the families, this is what you're paying for and giving you the value or helping you understand the value of the services that you're paying for. Um, because that's, you know, I mean, if you get right down to it again, going back to that part of it is, 
families need to know what we're doing and why. And sometimes it's, it's us that's doing that because doctors will sometimes talk way up over their head and we're using big words. And so then you come back in, they're like, well, I just can't understand why I need to do this. And then you may be back there still just it's communication. And that to me is one of the most important things that I hope to drive home to our students over the two years that they're with us is, is they have to have very good verbal um, and nonverbal communication skills and realizing that is not about animals or just animals, but it's about the animal or the human as well. And it's like you said earlier, Jensen was the, um, the human animal bond situation where pets are no longer just pets, but they are family. Right. Um, and I, I'm exactly right there with you. Like my dogs are with me 99% of the time they sleep with me, they eat dinner with me, you know, like they're my companions. And so I get that. Um, but I also come from a generation where pets were still pets, you know, lots of working dogs, cats live and die by the road kind of mentality. Um, so, but anyway, the, again, just going back to this, helping that this, helping the students um, understand that, that that communication and the human interaction is sometimes to me more important than what we can do with the animals in the back, the, the stuff they can't see. I mean, that's where you get your trust. I mean, that's where exactly like, in my opinion, if you can establish that connection with the parent of an animal that you have in the hospital mm-hmm. and they can, you can build some kind of rapport and trust with them, even in a short amount of time. Like it's nice if, if the, the parents are making their trips coming in, Right. And, mm-hmm. and building that rapport. But in that time, the amount of anxiety that you can bring down for them, knowing that they're with somebody that they know cares on the other side of that wall back there is, mm-hmm. is like night and day, not just for them, but even for the staff up front so that they're not getting angry phone calls and they're not getting, I, I like, I can't even imagine some of the stuff that you guys have to deal with, with the parents <laughs> that are like stressed out, like, okay, it's been 10 minutes. What's going on. Okay. It's been 10 mm-hmm. minutes. What's yeah. going on over and over and over again. And I, and I have a total amount of empathy for them because that's a really, really difficult thing to go through. But at the same time, you're taking staff away from being able to help your animal in the back, you know, and Mm -hmm. trying to find that balance. So I I love that you guys have an emphasis on the human human connection at the same time. It feels really good when, you know, you have a client say to you, you know what? I'm so glad you're here today. And they know that when they walk out the door and they leave us, leave their pet with us, that they have, like you said, that comfort and the confidence and a little bit decrease of anxiety to make sure that, okay, I think it's going to be okay. So what's the supply and demand in the, in the industry right now? Ooh, this is bad. Veterinarians, veterinary nurses um, are really in demand. Yes. Yeah. There is um, a uh, there is a, a a burnout and a turnover. Um, you know, per, per current articles, they say 
um, about half of veterinary technicians or veterinary nurses will burn out in the field within the first five years, and about 35% of them burn out at some point. So um, I think so we're is really- that, like, is that, do you think, dealing with people or dealing with animals? Like, if you had to, like, can we help the veterinary community more by being more understanding and knowing what's going on to prevent that burnout? Or is it just a reality of so many difficult decisions every single day dealing with animals? There is a component, especially you guys for, can be the honest. <laughs> for the veterinary nurse, that we need to increase the pay rate for veterinary nurses. They're not paid what they should be considering the training that they have and the responsibility and the ability that they have. So there are some hospitals that realize and are trying to pay better salaries, um, but that's a component. Sometimes we have some of the old school veterinary hospitals where maybe the veterinarian is doing more than, you know, they're doing more of the tasks that should be for the veterinary nurse. So, you know, giving them the responsibilities that they're trained for and paying them appropriately um, I think when you compare in human medicine, I mean, I always give the example where some people will shop around, you know, they have a dog to get spayed and then they might say, oh my gosh, you know, that's costing, you know, $600 or something. And, and can you imagine though, for a hysterectomy for a woman of how right. much that costs in the human field? So I think just kind of keeping in proportion of, you know, the care that you're getting for your animal. And yes, it is going to come at a cost. And, uh, and that then too, in some of our corporate practices, that the veterinary industry needs to be paying our support people better. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So to add to that is financial is a huge part of it. And A, we don't get into vet med to get rich, but we do need to make a livable wage and not, and I would say if you, if we did a real survey, I would bet that close to 50% of all support staff have one or more jobs, meaning they, uh, that we all have some form of part-time job, like um, to, to make ends meet. Um, and that sometimes is even true for the veterinarian because it is now considered a second income profession. So you, it's, it, which is, gives you a real big eye opener in the sense of what the value is of, of these medical professionals. And then the other part of the burnout aspect is, is that we, as people, again, I think it's the type of people who choose this field are very bad at setting boundaries and we will, work 12, 13, 14 hour shifts, work 60, 70 hours a week and keep going and keep going. And part of it is, is that, you know, once you build that team and that trust between each other within the doctors and the support staff that you don't ever want to let someone down, right? Sure. You're like, okay, we're short staffed. We have, maybe we have 14, 15 patients in the hospital. There's four of us in the hospital. If I go home now, there's only three, like, oh, I can work a few more hours until someone else comes on it, that mentality or never taking your breaks. You know, we don't, uh, in fact, in, in some places, um, you know, it's obviously law to take your breaks right. or you're supposed to, but um, 
if you took a survey of all of us, the reality is, is that many of us are working 12 or plus hours straight. We're eating on the go. We're lucky if we've gone to the bathroom once during that whole time, like we're not drinking enough water. We're just going, 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 going. And, and so we don't take care of ourselves. It goes back to that kind of that self-care. We are really poor at that. I will make a plug also for the career of veterinary nursing, as opposed to going the, the longer route to go to veterinary school, um, because the education for a veterinary nurse is still affordable. The education for a veterinarian has just gone through the roof. It's so, it's, so what does it cost are, to, go to go through school? So for us, you could get your entire education for basically $9,000. Okay. If you went the route of going to veterinary school, you could come out of vet school with a debt load of $300,000, wow. depending. So um, with the increase of cost, though, for the veterinarian to go to school, that that the, the the pay rate had increased then for veterinarians. So I want to see the pay rate increase for veterinary nurses because of everything that they do in a veterinary facility. Mm-hmm. So, so what might be some of the solutions then? Cause I I've heard all of this. So uh, veterinary nurses are overworked, overstressed, <laughs> underpaid, underpaid. Yeah. and in over demand, like, yeah. like everything like that is just so cattywampus, like everything's not matching up there. Like what's the solution? Like, how do we fix that? Because I know like, again, this show is not to make vets sound like evil. I'm sure that they're dying to find good vet techs. And there's a lot of good quality vets out there that are paying good wages and all yes, of that. Absolutely. But I think even just getting the awareness out of what a veterinary nurse or veterinary technician is and what they do. Being in the field of education now for a while, I've encountered some students where they might want to do veterinary nursing, but then their family emphasis is, well, you've always wanted to be a veterinarian, you know, ever since you were little, um, you know, that seems to be what kids say oh you know I want to be the animal doctor and just knowing that there is an alternative somebody that then is really trained in the field still goes through continuing education just like the veterinarian has to as a licensed professional that that's a standalone career and that the awareness for the public that there is that career and the hope that yes we do see hospitals that are increasing pay because they need to keep these professionals in their hospitals. Mm -hmm. To me, it sounds like a fantastic entry point of let's make sure I like this. I mean, so if if you listen to this podcast and you hear that there's a, there's a high burnout rate, then like, but you still want to go through with this, like, please. Um, But spending $9,000, and a, and a smaller amount of time to get in, get your feet wet, get involved in the community, mm-hmm. um, and then make that decision to take the larger step after that. I mean, it sounds super logical to me. I honestly, I would, I would go even farther with that and advocate that they, before they go to school in any degree of this 
profession that they spend as much time in a facility as possible. If, I mean, even if they are cleaning kennels and dealing with vomit and poop and, you know, barking dogs all day, that they, they see that before, because I think some people go in with these rose colored glasses and, and I've seen it over the years. I've had people beg me for like, Oh, this is what I want to do. I want to do. In fact, this was years ago. And one girl, she, I hired her. And then, um, the same day, my boss's daughter's cat had been attacked by a raccoon and it was pretty beat up. Like there were bones sticking out of places that shouldn't be. Um, and she saw that and that was her immediate realization. She's like, oh my God, I can't do this. So I think spending a little time volunteering in shelters is a good way because you see the discarded pets, <laughs> You, but also just either getting hired before, like doing some type of small assistant work, you know, even if it's like going in and talking to clients, things like that, it helps you realize exactly what you're getting into, you know? And so I do feel like you need to know what you're, what you're dealing with. And because um, in some levels, some people, they don't realize the repetition that we do. We do a lot of the same things day in and day out. And um, you know, like for instance, a lot of people think emergency medicine is just super glamorous. Um, and I always tell them it's like 80%, you know, routine stuff, vomiting, diarrhea, broken toenails, you know, cuts on feet, things like that. And it's like this tiny little portion of what we call super cool medicine, you know, like we're like, Oh, we got to do X, Y, and Z today. This is great. So, but that's true in family practice. It's true in shelter medicine. It's true in all types. So just those realizations in general, I would say just opening your eyes to really what the profession means and, and whether or not you want to do it. Um, I guess another example I have is not, this isn't vet related, but my daughter for whatever reason wants to go to mortuary school. And so I'm like, don't go to school until you go and experience the work in the industry. Yeah. yeah. The work in the industry, because wow. And I think our fair profession kind of parallels that and that you don't totally realize the good, the bad and the ugly altogether. And for our program, um, our program is a limited admission. So we have a certain number of seats and then people apply for those seats. And uh, one of the things, if somebody does not have experience working at a veterinary hospital for at least three to six months, that they get 50 hours of observation at a veterinary facility before they apply so that they do get some basis of what this career is about. Mm-hmm. So why do you guys do what you do? Like, let's, let's kind of wrap the show up with that because we've spent a lot of time, a little bit on doom and gloom, but I know <laughs> how, how passionate you guys are both about what you do and, and the path that you've taken. So, I mean, there's obviously people out there that have this heart for animals that are going to go through and, and we've met some. So like, like, why do you guys do what you do? Do you want to start? Well, for me, um, I became a veterinarian based on getting a rescue dog that led me down the path. At that time, the veterinary technicians weren't really the same emphasis as a career as they are now, because um, I went to vet school uh, quite a while ago. And uh, so I became a veterinarian. I went into private practice in Arizona and even 
I, I burned out pretty quickly, the long days, the stresses. Um, and then when I moved to Reno, I was trying to balance that, not just go right back into practice. So I started helping at the local shelter or animal control. And, um, and I became a, a, a part-time, a contract vet for animal control. And, uh, and then there was a student that was there that was in the vet tech program at the time. And it was an early on. Um, our program only started, our first class graduated in uh, 2000, uh, it was 2004, mm-hmm. and uh, I started in 2005. Um, my dad taught community college his whole career. He taught economics. So um, I think I was a little in my blood then to be in the education system. And we help a lot of rescues um, because we have that passion as well in our program. Um, but it's really rewarding for me um, to see the graduates and where they go and how their careers progress. And yes, yeah, some of them that go on to other careers, mm-hmm. but um, it's kind of being able to help animals still, but by helping the people that are going to help the animals. So that's why I've been in this profession of education um, for as long as I have. Love it. I think for me, I, like I said, I grew up in the field. I also grew up with a very um, animal heavy family. We raised hound dogs um, and we had at any given time, like 15 or more. Um, so like yeah, totally or more hound dogs around. Yeah. You. That is a yeah, loud so, house. And so as you can imagine, like I've fully been immersed. And I think the the pivotal thing for me was we, one time we had a Sheltie who she whelped um, her puppies in the closet of my bedroom, which is, she just randomly chose that spot. Um, and like watching that experience and seeing her care for them and the development of the puppies and the growth. And that was like, I think a real big stick to me in my mind. And then I ultimately by some stroke of life um, ended up living next to a vet hospital. And so when I was very young, I was cleaning cages, mopping floors, walking dogs, doing the dirty work. And I stayed with that practice for 13 years. And for me, it was as much the love of the people, um, not just the, my coworkers, but my clients, like my people, it was as much about them as it was their animals. And in, in companion animal, like in in family practice, you do form this bond, this relationship, like you get to know people, you watch them grow, you watch their pets grow. Sometimes you're watching their children grow. Um, and, and then their kids are coming to bring their pets in now, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, and then, after that, you know, after that many years, I really was starting to struggle with what do I do next? I, I felt like I had plateaued a little. That's when I ended up getting my LVT, which was in the early 2000s, um, which is licensed veterinary technician. Uh, and then I was really fortunate to work with a doctor who recognized that um, I needed to do something more. Or I was going to leave the field. I was actually in dental hygiene school. Um, and he said, hey, you know, there's a specialty in uh, dentistry. And he's like, would you like to pursue that? And so my practice then um, helps support my movement for specialty 
um, into dentistry. So I essentially became a doggy hygienist. And so the, the neat thing about that is, is that I was at that burnout point. I was at that realization where I either had to find something new or um, become leadership or management. And that's definitely not my gig. Mm-hmm. Um, so having that ability that prolonged my career for another like full-time practice for gosh, almost another 14 years. And I stayed with the same doctor there. So, um, so you asked earlier, just, I'm sorry, this is a small tangent, but you said, how do we keep, how do we keep our technicians? And one is to support growth. I think that's huge support growth and development and don't let them become stagnant. Um, because that's what is a big, big killer of making people not want to stay is just the, that, that part of it. So I was fortunate in that. And then I've always been an educator. I have been very fortunate to do this on a, um, informal platform for gosh, probably 10 years and then part-time at the college for a long time. And then when the opportunity opened up to become a full-time educator with the college, um, I couldn't say no, because this is what I love and, and the reason that I'm here. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't keep teaching students if I didn't believe that it was worth their while to move forward. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Well, I'm assuming anybody that's interested in talking to you guys directly about signing up with the program or has more um, detailed uh, questions, they could reach out to you guys directly. Absolutely. Yeah, if you go to the Truckee Meadows Community College, so tmcc.edu, um, the website, um, and, and put in the search bar, veterinary nursing, uh, comes up with information about the program and a way to contact us. Love it. Love it, love it. Well, I've enjoyed having you guys on today. Like, honestly, I feel like I probably have another two or three hours worth of questions <laughs> that we could totally dig into. We'll have to have you guys back on again to to talk about some of that, but, um, like, keep, yeah, thank you. Keep thank doing you doing what you guys are doing. Like yes. it's, it's amazing. Thank you for bringing awareness to the field of veterinary nursing, veterinary technicians. And we have a great new campus site, uh, where we have space for all of our needs for education that looks so much more beautiful now because of, uh, the photos. From I was going to say, oh, yes. I might have some more stuff for you guys too. So we'll bring that over too. We have okay. space. So we have, yeah. We, and it's so nice. It's so warming to have those photos in when we come in every day. So we really yeah. appreciate you sharing yeah. them with us. Love They're it. beautiful. They touch it, everyone. So. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Jason. And we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I just want to take a quick second and thank everybody for joining us today. I want to give an extra big thank you to both Julie and Michelle for opening up and sharing what drives them to be a part of the veterinary community, some of their experiences and everything like that. Um, There was, there was definitely some, some chords that, you know, that struck home. Um, My parents had to go through an experience of losing one of their dogs and they have some connections to that. So there's, there's a closeness that I have um, with these women and it was great having them on the show. Um, make sure to follow them. If you have any questions about becoming part of the program, reach out to them directly. Uh, we'll list the, um, the, the, the program in the notes. 
As always, make sure to give them a follow. And if you're not already subscribed, make sure you subscribe to the Doggish Podcast. And lastly, if there is a topic, personality, or event that you would love for us to have on the show, don't be afraid to reach out or make a suggestion and let us know what they are. Until next time, I know you're all missing Sylvia deeply and she will be back on the next show. But from me, thank you. Goodbye. And we'll talk to you soon. 